So welcome everybody. Good to see you all again. Alexander, Alex, Thomas, Andrew and Lehman, who uh, is not able to talk, but I guess if he wants to contribute something, he will uh, put it in the chat and then I will read it loud. Yeah, welcome. So, Alexander, your book is out, huh? Process and events. The book's out. Yeah. Cheers. Cheers. Glass <laughs> of red wine here. Cheers to the book. I, I really <laughs> think Parallax should become a wine brand. I think we need a sponsor. I, if anybody, anything is credible mm -hmm. for the for us guys sitting here, <laughs> it will be actually getting a lot, getting drunk. Like you, you're parallel before you drink. You you become parallaxed when you get drunk. So why not Parallax wine? So I'm oh, going to go grab a glass of wine. I'm going to yeah, go yeah, please do. Please right do. back. Yes, okay. great. I'm ashamed to say my cellar is empty. So. <laughs> Told you. The Parallax wine is whiskey, So that's good. Hmm? Frost Le Lehman is out. Parallax wine is not out yet, but it's coming. I'm sure it's coming. Layman is always drinking whiskey, right? I heard this is a rumor about Layman that he has this little glass of whiskey with him wherever he goes. That's and, the secret of his genius. And That's Thomas Hamburg being Belgian, can we expect some beer around here? Or Yeah, Thomas is going to be drinking the, the beer. That's the king of the beer. Yep. Layman is like the philosophical Doc Holiday or something, no? Who's Doc Holiday? Uh, Tombstone. You don't know Doc Holliday, played by Val Kilmer in that in that movie with Kurt Russell. Oh, oh yeah. Well, here's a secret for all, all of you: Layman Pascal and Alexander Bard are gonna have a steak together in Toronto in November. Oh wow! Yeah, she's not a vegan after all. He's a steak guy. There you go. I hear no protest from Lehman. So basically, I can say anything about Lehman today. He will hear it, but he cannot stop me from saying it. I love this. I love this conversation. I think it's called Dominance as a Mission. I think Thomas Hamerick is an expert at it, but I'm just practicing with Lehman here right now. So, I mean, just to start off the conversation, uh, Alex, um, Alexander, would you would you like to um, just, for start, uh, explain so what the core idea of of the book is? Oh God. Okay. So the ambition is, is enormous uh, for the three books. Um, Synthism, Creating God in the Internet Age came out in 2014. Digital Libido, Sex, Power and Violence came out 2018. And this is the third book. The way we've done it is very Hegelian. We've done them in the opposite order as you would expect it. So thinking of the arrow of time and just go the other way around. And the reason for this is that it's also easier, more fun to start with the book about the future. Then Digital Libido is about the really dark sort of apocalyptic stage we arrive at. We've had a lot of these discussions on Parallax here, for example, with Gerard and Thomas, Thomas is the expert on that. And that's Digital Libido. It's a very dark book. And, and then Protestant Event is written as the rewriting of all of history until now. Basically, the rewriting of civilization and the dominant ideas of civilization. And we're doing an enormous reshifting of ideas. You know, you've heard about the axial age. It was supposed to be fantastic. You know, there was like a thousand years. We had Confucius and Plato and all these guys. And apparently this was some kind of golden age. We are, we disagree with that strongly, John Sedeckrist and I. We rather think that we have to refocus all of history. And this is exactly the point. The point we're writing the history book last is that the history book is written as if it's written from the future. So imagine like you've gone through synthesis digital media, you've arrived in a sort of completed internet age, you're, you're getting what it's all about. So you're in standing that position, then you rewrite the history of ideas. So it's, it's prophetic in the sense that we sit in the 2020s, we imagine we're about 80 to 100 years 
decade from now. And from that position, we start to refocus, which we always do at paradigm shifts historically. Every paradigm shift forces human beings to rewrite all of history, to find a new root of the phallus before they can go phallic, to re-understand the world. This is what's what's transcendental in transcendental emergentism, which is our metaphysical system. What's transcendental is that any new emergence, any new event in history, reforces you to rewrite all of history onto net, because history itself is also in flux and is never stable. So we're totally anti-Plato. We're also anti-Confucius in this book, to be honest about it. Plato and Confucius are the two enemies. We try to tear them apart in this book. So why process and event as a process title? Process and event is because we think the really interesting thing historically happened in the Bronze Age. And it was when human beings started imagining when they were getting permanent, started imagining larger populations than tribe. So we first lay out why there's a case for the tribe, the sociot, the original nomadic tribe. Why we have to start there. Why we haven't even imagined what kind of religious worldview people would have if they were completely nomadic. So we start with that and create a nomadology. Then on top of that, we start looking at, and it's a split between Persia and India. When Persia and India go separate ways uh, about, you know, about 2000 before Christ at the latest. And we end up with Iranians, we end up with Indians. And, and what happens is that the, they share the same religion, basically, which is polytheistic religion. And we have the same paganism in, in Europe, basically. But, but they go off into a different direction. India moved towards a process-focused worldview. And circular time is central to that. The Iranians take a gamble and instead go the other way and move towards an event-oriented worldview where linear time dominates. They both acknowledge that both versions of time are existent, but they take two different directions to it. And then after having this sort of very creative dialectical relationship between process and event, which is fundamentally the deeper version of yin and yang, you know, the feminineness of the process, the masculineness in the event. But the, the, to go deep into that is precisely to start solving humanity's new problems. And the major new problem is a problem of scale. What can we possibly do to keep people at peace for as long as possible when they're no longer tribal, but moving to larger populations? And we know for a fact, Sergei Turchin has proved this from data anthropology, that basically the beginning of civilization was nothing but a bloodbath. You'd kill anything that was outside of your own tribe. You, you, you bred like crazy. You had food to eat, but you killed. And the question is then, how do you tame this killing mechanism? How do you create a narrative to begin with for people to have larger populations? And the dream then, the first and oldest dream is the dream about empire. And following that dream is the dream about nation. And what's fascinating is that this is the origin of Western culture. And we call that origin the Persian-Hebrew axis. The West has nothing to do with the Greeks. The only thing the Greeks really invented was drama. They, they, they wrote down philosophy, but almost anything the Greeks thought or wrote that inherited from Egyptians or from Persians or Babylonians before they wrote it. So the question here is, the Persian Hebrew axis is the foundation of the West. And in response to that, the East also developed both India, China, and eventually Japan and other cultures that were much more process-oriented. So the name process and event is an attempt to merge East with West and digital, and try to make sense of that as an historical worldview that makes sense to us living in the internet age. Yes, so what I find interesting is that, you know, across the scales, you describe it in the book as if, you know, process and event are like two different paradigms that are in, in constant conflict with each other. Is that right? 
Well, what happened was the tragedy. The tragedy was that the East stayed with process and dropped event. And both Indian and Chinese culture became obsessed with just the eternal repetition of the same, which is another name for the process. The other tragedy, and we are very adamant here, we're not big fans of Christianity or Islam. That's not a secret. And the problem with Christianity and Islam fundamentally is that these two religions were pop religions presented to the masses that worked in feudal systems, but they ignored the process and only stayed with the event. And of course, then when you stay with only the event, what happened? Muhammad stormed Mecca, Christ died on the cross, it's the only thing that ever happened, nothing else is of concern, there's a before and after this specific event, and then you're sitting there waiting for the Savior to return and create heaven on earth. And you totally focus on the afterlife, and you build pyramids and enormous cemeteries and all this sort of disasters, so I think of Western culture, are really there. The persons stayed with both process and event. They banned pyramids. If somebody died, you went and dropped the corpse in the forest and the vultures could eat it. Tibetans do the same thing. Mongols do the same thing. The, the, the lesson learned from keeping both process and event is that you die when you die. So the event can be the, the dialectical, playful opposition to the process. The, the whole argument of the book is that process and event must be, must be two occurrences. We must view the world both as secular and linear. We cannot afford to view it as only one or the other because that's blatantly not true. And they've explained that this dichotomy between secular and linear time, again, is dialectical. The book is fiercely dialectical. It's more Hegelian than Hegel. And the whole point we're using dialectics, and I think we even call it pan-dialecticism, the only thing that everything we, we, we observe or involve, get involved with in the universe, the only way we can understand anything that it has something in common is that it's dialectical. That's the argument. So the fundamental dialectics is one between process and event. But isn't it, it's not very dialectical with respect to Christianity because, I mean, there's, I mean, I haven't read the book uh, um, entirely. I mean, it's, uh, how many pages is it? It's uh, 600 pages. But I mean, um, so there's the book is very much Zoroastrianism. Uh, it's it's basically a book about Zoroastrianism, basically I would say, and 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 in the book, like uh, religions like Christianity and Islam, they they are contrasted with Zoroastrianism. So it's not very dialectical. I mean, you have like the bad religions like Christianity and Islam, and then you have the good religion like Zoroastrianism. And isn't that a bit like not very dialectical? Isn't that a very simple? No, 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 no. I think you misunderstand dialectics. Well, it's a question. Di di dialectics is not a scale where two things are valued equally. It isn't. That's not at all the case. What we're arguing is that Christianity and Islam had a role. They helped the West get rid of the caste system. They, 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 they were religions for the masses. They were simple and easy to understand. They built big, big mosques and churches. And as long as you live in the countryside and worked for an aristocrat, they worked. You were fooled into walking to, to working your ass off six days a week and go to church on a Sunday. Karl Marx and Nietzsche are absolutely right. Christianity and Islam worked in a feudal society. Ever since we, we got the printing press, these religions have gradually fallen in importance. They're intellectually completely now redundant. And they're also losing the masses eventually. We call it secularization. It's already happened in Europe. I live in Sweden. Nobody's a Christian any longer. Here. Nobody's a Christian. It's dead. So the point is, why did it die? And why is it dying? Even, even if these things are macro trends or long periods of time. There is nothing there to gauge with dialectically any longer. The dead meat. The most important event during antiquity had nothing to do with any guy on the cross and nothing to do with any boy pharaoh storming Mecca because he was pissed off with, with the traders of Mecca. The most important event 
that changed history forever was Cyrus the Great and his conquest of Babylon 539 before Christ. That's why the only thing you even find in the UN headquarters is precisely the Cyrus Cylinder. He shocked the world by not killing his enemies and boiling his enemies' children in oil. This is the event during antiquity. Cyrus the Great built an empire and told the Babylonians, you're not Babylonian enough for me. Be more Babylonian and stay within my empire. He was the one who set the Hebrews free, which created the Persian Hebrew axis. After that, the Hebrew rewrote their entire religion with the Torah inspired by Zoroastrianism. This is why it's a Persian Hebrew axis. They invented something fantastic. The Hebrews invented the nation. They invented a community of people who spoke the same language, used the same alphabet. And therefore, any nation state built afterwards is always built on the Jewish state. Anti-Semitism is not racism. It's just nation envy. This is the argument. Cyrus the Great Babylon, 539 before Christ, is the radical event. We can no longer regard Christ or Muhammad as even in the same league, not even close. That dialectical process, Thomas, is over. There's nothing there to gain from Christianity or Islam. Just like a paganism stuck in India, which completely ignored the event, could not help India modernize. India is leaving the idea of paganism. It's now reforming itself gradually and slowly as well to find the religions more credible. And we therefore suggest the Indians to add the event to their mix. So we need both process and event and the dialectics is between process and event. Once you go for only process or only event, you kill the dialectical process. Christianity and Islam did that over and done with, no longer in dialogue and therefore they're dead religions. So, so, so it's a bit like, so there, there's a couple of questions then. So, so it seems that your book kind of gives the impression that you you seem to reason that something went wrong and that the wrong religions kind of took over and that everything would have been a lot better if we had Zoroastrianism instead. No, no, I don't argue that. I said at the time when you had a feudal society and had that paradigm, that probably worked to keep a feudal society together. I'm saying they're now redundant. Yeah, so why didn't, yeah. why didn't Zoroastrianism do that? Because, it kind because of, it mean, never aspired to. Zoroastrianism never, Zoroastri Zoroastri uh, never aspired to convert to. It never aspired to convert to. Do that now? Judaism and Zoroastrianism never aspired to convert to. They never did. You're yourself a Vajrayana Buddhist. Buddhism is booming in the West. Not really. I just came back from Bavaria after sitting in a Vajrayana Buddhist monastery in, 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 in Bavaria full of women. Women in the West have already dropped Christianity entirely gone Buddhist. They're going Buddhist massively. Buddha statues everywhere, candlelights everywhere. I think men need to do the same. I think Buddhism is the first of a wave of religion coming from the East, like East is adopting technology from the West, we're adopting religion from the East. Buddhism is the first major way when we succeed first. We have hundreds of Buddhist monasteries and temples now everywhere around Europe and America. We'll have more of them. Taoism is gonna come next after because we have almost 80 million Chinese exiled right now who take Taoist beliefs with them. They certainly, none of them is a communist leaving China. None of them is a Confucian. They're all Taoist. And after that, I think Sorastinism can play the role of being a third complementary these three religions we call the Silk Road Triad. The Silk Road Triad being developed along trade roads are religiously, theologically, absolutely superior quality-wise compared to anything else. You can then attach Judaism, you can attach Shaivism and India if you like to that. There are many qualities in those two. The Silk Road Triad is actually spiritual traditions that originated in Persia, China, and India. And I think they're vastly superior to anything the West has created. The meta-crisis of Western culture that we're all talking about in these discourses right now is a crisis of the death of Christianity, the last man. 
Nietzsche prophesied, said that this would happen. I totally agree. We're now seeing it happen. The internet is finally killing Christianity. But I mean, isn't the Buddhism you're talking about, you know, like the, I found that passage in your book very interesting, you know, where you talk about Mickey Mouse and Disney spirituality, but is not the the uh, uh, Buddhism you're talking about this kind of Mickey Mouse bullshit that, you know, the Ibiza girls and, you know, all these California girls, they're not really practicing original Buddhism. I you don't know, think it, I, I think that's very often the case because pop versions of anything spread very quickly, but you can't say that we had what we sort of sarcastically call Western Buddhism before that. I, I can tell you these the people I sat with now at the Varayana Century Bavaria were very serious about that. They took it very seriously. None of them finds anything in the Bible they can even relate to any longer, but they do take this seriously. They feel they're very much at home with this work. And, and I think this is why it's serious. What we do in the book is that we basically say, Technology has gone up, religion has gone down over the last 3,000 years. That's undeniably what happened. And then we sarcastically give the Americans this. We said the Americans have invented three religions of their own. They called Jehovah's Witnesses, the Mormons, and Scientology. I don't think anybody seriously would argue they're even close to the Silk Route tried in terms of quality. At Scientology, I mean... It's capitalism where you can buy yourself into some kind of a nightclub VIP lounge with Tom Cruise after you're dead on a foreign planet. I mean, come on. It's absolute rubbish, right? So the Disney World triad should be compared with the Silk Road triad. And what you will discover, the Silk Road triad, I'm critical of the original Buddha, but I'm certainly not critical of Buddhism because you have Varayana, you have Zen, you have amazing Buddhist traditions that eventually develop. In the Buddhist tradition, and they're fantastic. And because Buddhism is not dogmatic, Zoroastrianism is not dogmatic. Taoism are not dogmatic. They can survive now. They are ever-changing. Whereas Christianity and Islam constantly get stuck in these dogmatic hell holes where they end up. I it's think I have to yeah, like yeah. jump in here and because I'm supposed to defend Buddhism right now or something, right? Because you're defending Zoroastrianism and um uh I think like there are countries that are Vajrayana, like there's Bhutan and there's Tibet, they were full on Vajrayana countries and they were as rotten as Christianity in the Middle Ages. They were they, they basically had slaves. So I think that I think that that, that all religion has a has a has an exoteric uh, form that's very, you know, you know, church on Sunday style. And then there are the real high quality aspects of them. That's that's what I would, I well, would say. Well, hey, Sorastanism was the first religion to ban slavery. I'm not saying that slaves did not mm -hmm. exist in the Persian Empire. They had far fewer slaves than anybody else. And you did not have an exodus out of Persia, an exodus out of Egypt. So we can go into details like that, and we can go on for hundreds of hours. The, there is always a dialectics, dialectics between technological development and ideas. Right? So ideas are really reactions to technological developments. They can't stick. You, you can be as smart as you like, but an idea cannot stick. It cannot stick unless there's a context when it can get, it can get glued to. As so many of the ideas that for thousands of years you could never develop, suddenly we live in the internet age and we can develop many of them. Yeah, it's true that the Judaism and Zoroastrianism are very small religions and they don't want to convert a lot of people and they consider themselves to be small religions. And I guess this, the the best of the Vajrayana religions are like that as, as well. Uh, 
Uh, exactly. But, but then, but then I, I, well, what are we going to do with all these big religions that are everywhere? I mean, that how they're do we... dying. They're dying. Let but, them die. Let's secularize. My point is to go through the dialectical mm -hmm. process, go through secularization. I am totally Gideon. You have to go all the way. Christianity had to go all the way. Nietzsche was right, had to go all the way. We are now at the last man. The meta crisis is the last man. It's a standard for Western culture. And then we see that capitalism replaced Christianity and capitalism is a horrendous religion, although it's wonderful at the same time, because capitalism is just plowing its way through everything. It's forcing us to, to turn everything into products and capitalism basically grabbing us by the neck today and saying, is there anything that is sacred and private to you which is not for sale? And most people don't have anything that's sacred or private. Great, it's a dialectical process. You have to return then and say, can I even afford to have something that's sacred and private to me? And then you have to go back and revisit religion. Then you cannot go with the religions that open the door to capitalism and blatant exploitation and abuse. You have to go back and check, was there anybody out there I can build from over the last 4,000 years who actually had ideas that weren't mass religions at the time, they weren't popular, but actually did foresee this and that therefore we can build something fundamental on. I mean, I did a trilogy with Jan Söder, case was philosophical. This is a theological tri trilogy. That's the whole point. Theology is deep philosophy. You can't do anything deep if you stay in a philosophical environment, even if Sorastianism invented philosophy and is philosophy. But it's deep philosophy in the sense that it's also theological. When you ask yourself about God, you don't ask whether God exists or not, some kind of old man sitting on a cloud. That only American Christianity is still stuck with those silly ideas. You ask yourself, what is the fucking most important thing in my life, more important than anything else, that then can possibly give value to everything else? That's the God word. We're adamant about it. That's what we're doing theology. I'd like to hear Alex's perspective on, on you know, religion here, you know, and philosophy and kind of the crossover between the two because i don't i don't and i don't hear alex speak too much about religion usually you 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 talk about the fight you kind of like have this very subtle way of writing and thinking about philosophical issues but i don't hear you speak about religion that much i would like to talk about that i have a question for bard first though so in my and let me know where you're losing me but my conception of process and i haven't read the book uh but my conception of process is that given a enough time, uh, a quantitative threshold will be reached at which point process becomes event. So what I'd like to understand is how the East has somehow negated event while strictly embracing process, because it seems to me that the embrace of process entails event. I think with large populations and densely populated as China and India been, they couldn't afford to be as adventurous as you are when you start thinking event as first category. They therefore ended up with process only because the caste systems saved them. The caste system must be understood uniquely as a peace-saving institution historically. Danny Liu is absolutely right. The reason why India had fewer wars and today by far is the most densely heavily populated country on the, on, the, on the planet is simply because the Indians had far fewer wars that were far less violent than other cultures do. We talked a lot about Chirar, but there are many mechanisms out there. Basically, priesthood is trying to maintain the peace for as long as possible until war is unavoidable. And war usually comes to you got starvation or something like that happened. Then it is unavoidable. Until then, you try to maintain the peace. 
what the Indians did was to invent the caste system. They invented really where the West is going today. They invented like boxes and said that, okay, you guys do that. That's your monopoly. You guys do that. That's your monopoly. You guys do that. And when the world wasn't changing much, when, when technology wasn't developed much, when you basically just had settled and developed agriculture and a feudal society, and it was going to last for thousands of years, the caste system worked. Now, once you have the caste system, since everybody is born into the role and cannot change the role they're born into, you must therefore have a caste system as the absolute. And the only thing you can do is then to drop the event. Now, here's the thing. Cattle Last is richly credited in a book for inventing the term negatology. It was in these conversations we talked about it. Both you, Alex A. Burton, and Thomas Amrick, you're both in the book in lots of places. A lot of the conversations we had are now in process and event. And here's the trick. The, it was the it was the understanding that there must have been a precursor in the nomadology, a precursor in nomadic life that reminded you that change could be possible. It's death. People died. And you made up stories about them. Yeah, but we reincarnate and whatever soul that person had will return here. The reincarnation is correct because it's the reincarnation of archetypes. Basically, you die because your memory dies. If you die, that memory that was collected, connect yourself is gone. But somebody similar to you will then come in the next generation, probably something you even trained, take over your role. And once they take over that role, they go into that position and the archetype is being repeated. So archetypology opens up for reincarnation of archetypes. The process works here. But the trick is then what happened in Persia was the two guys, Sorastri and Vishtaspa, who are precursors to Moses and Aaron. Very similar story. Sorastri and Vishtaspa, apparently, according to the legend, spent 23 years trying to figure out what the world needed. Came out through the door and came out with a reformation. They did not reinvent religion. The reformation was called philosophy. Mazda Yasna and Persian. This is the birth of philosophy. The reformation was, we can reform religion into something that evolves over time in a dialectical process and therefore has the absolute truth, besides the fact that the reformation is superior to paganism that we had before. They banned blood sacrifice, they banned slavery, they got rid of a lot of things we inherited and started then pro proposing and promoting a civilized agricultural world. They opened up to Islamic Christianity. I don't have a problem with the success of Islamic Christianity. I have the problem with the fact that people are returning to them because they, although they're dead. Islam is dying now, even in the Middle East. Secularization is going to happen even faster there than it did in America and Europe for Christianity. But these religions are only now for the bottom of society. They're low class. You can go to Najaf, Iraq, and discover that the worst fucking pyramid ever built is Alice cemetery with six million fucking people buried so that when all the returns they're all going to wake up from the dead bullshit the biggest lie ever is the afterlife you will never return you will never be resurrected you will never reincarnate because when you die demented memory is gone but the archetypes return so i think the caste system that were forced on china and india and kept them poor when the printing press arrived only now are they catching up is the explanation and when I talk to Indians about this, they say, yeah, it was only when new careers like techno technological careers, engineering careers happened in India, and you could get outside of the caste system, marry outside of the caste system, what modern Indians do, that India's economy exploded. That only happened 30 years ago. And I so, think yeah, China's... Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, that's that's good. So this, this, this reminds me then of our, me, you, and Thomas's sort of epic my favorite probably thread uh, on the IDW server, 
most recently. Um, so when you describe the caste system, what comes to mind regarding our conversation previously is the schematization of the mind, uh, the categorization and the attempt to minimize free energy. Uh, the attempt to create a, an equilibrium or a stasis which is not disturbed and which tries to occlude or prevent events, which yeah. tries to just stay within the schematized ontological stasis of whatever has been accommodated and not uh, accommodate as uh, and accommodate as little prediction error as is possible. So, you know, so you have this caste system. It's like, this is what you are. This is the society. This is the grid we're going to overlay over the, we're going to map over society. And it it has sort of a resonance with the grid of schematization. And in the same way that we see that the mind works to preserve free energy, we see that the that societies work in the same way to sort of create an equilibrium that is unchanging and that minimizes unnecessary expenditures of energy. And so I wonder, um, Obviously, there's an extent to which maybe a, maybe it's entirely, maybe it's inarguable that it's anything but natural to want to preserve energy. And that these types of grids, like uh, like coming to, to the caste system, are unavoidable. However, and, and I'm just curious, like for me as an artist, for you as an artist, and 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 we 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 sort of understand the the implicit uh, necessity and benefit of the breaking of those structures, because without that we wouldn't ever experience the new, uh, or awe as I call it, or anything that overwhelms those schemas. But if we're thinking energetically and we're thinking efficiently and we're thinking in any of those sorts of ways, we understand that those moments, those events are massive expenditures of energy uh, and, and where energy is just leaking. It's also coming in and who knows how it's actually operating in the experience of art, but in the experience of a society, um, there's massive upheaval, there's all these sorts of things. And then you look back a hundred years from now, you were saying you look back and one of the great you know, I mean, it's totally rel relativistic, but the idea that like, oh, we got rid of slavery, but then we implemented slave wage labor, did anything really change? And so you could make the argument that they're, they're just these immense expenditures of, of energy. But what I'm interested in is why the, e even given the caste system, theoretically, like if we're going to bring Deleuze in, you have repetition, pure repetition across time, sameness, absolute redundancy. But the thing that's different is the time. Time makes the absolute redundancy different. Every increment of the exact replica is yet different. And because of that difference, eventually there's a quantitative threshold beyond which a saturation and an explosion of difference, uh, actual difference occurs, an event. And, um, and, even though there's the implementation of caste, I'm still curious as to. Well, you could you could look at, you could look at who broke, who was smarter than the other guys in Asia. China and India being large systems, probably therefore also was were conservative, so you didn't allow for anybody. Japan broke it. How did Japan break it? Japan invented adoption. Adoption has been standard procedure in in Japanese culture for the past fifteen hundred years. So when the East collided with the West and the enormous technological advantage and 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 the fact that the printing press had done its job in the West and people could read, write, and count, Westerners read about the East. Nobody in the East could even read. 
Can I what just happened? stop? Can you can you yeah. explain to me how how did how did adoption happen? It wasn't a choice, right? So something. How did it happen? Do you, do you have any sense of like why adoption began? Like J- Japan, the- Japan is smaller, more tighter. So it's both right. denser, so but ex- also smaller. Yeah, exactly. More Almost decent- like more saturation. More decentralized, definitely. So what happened in Japan was that the culture of adoption meant that when the East collided with the West, the East, only Japan was prepared to go outside the caste system because it already had. So if you if you build something in Japan and your son isn't good enough to take over, you adopt another son and then let your son be his kid brother or whatever. And the new son you train, your mentee when you're a mentor. The mentee-mentor relationship in Japan is a father-son relationship. Turned out to be totally superior when Japan collided with the West. Japan took off, beat the Russians in the war early 1900s. Started, you know, doubting our racism we had in the West. And suddenly it looked like maybe something from the East could rise again. And the Japanese then participating with the Germans and Italians in the Second World War, although they lost, they were incredibly oppressive fighters. And again, you had to start studying Japanese culture. And Japanese culture is, as a part of any other culture in the world, totally superior. Shintoism is incredibly similar to Judaism. Shintoism is the only religion besides Judaism, which is both a nation and a religion at the same time. Strong coherence in a culture, but because of adoption, which by the way, the Jews also practice. So the way to get out of the caste system was to accept adoptions. So the caste system for India and China became the same burden that Christianity and Islam has become for the West. They're nothing but the eternal repetition of the same with the eternal repetition of a dogma and the eternal repetition of one act as if it was the only event that ever counted and no other event after Christ on the cross or after Muhammad. No other events are allowed to be on a par with those two events. So you get stuck with Muhammad and Christ forever. No improvements. That's process. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that, that makes a lot. Of, I mean, so back to Andrew's inquiry about like, and, and, you know, I've argued with Thomas a lot about this, but that's my basic criticism of of Christianity. And you're right in the sense that the events, once they're abstracted into history and they exist strictly in our minds, any event, doesn't matter what it is that occurs, can be said to be less than the event in history because we didn't have any uh, somatic experience of that event. And so every event is a false event every peak is a false peak now and so you never get to event because you have this ultimate fictional uh, fictionalized or abstracted event that is always going to end up being superior and against which everything is going to be impossibly measured and so yeah you end up and there's a lot of amazing accounts like simon of trent in italy like the little kid and he was murdered and all of a sudden there was like this oh he's the next jesus and he's our saint and the pope shuts it down these events happened all throughout history where they're shut down because you really want to drive focus back to the initial event and that's why i think to get back and this is a fruitless argument with thomas but that's why i think that that rich that that essentially religion is the prohibition on novel ritual, uh, and 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 anyway, that's a separate. Well, well, that's what I want to jump in a bit here because uh, because there's something interesting about the Vajrayana tradition, is they have these these things where they have new new texts that emerge, that that uh, all the time. So you don't have one book that you're studying uh, and that's the they, only thing that you can have... ever do so so actually they have the, you know they have these these new 
uh, new rituals, new texts, new things that are always emerging. So I think, I think Adriana as a small religion is an exception to that particular conservatism. You know, Scientology also does that. Well, uh, yeah, true enough, true enough. They're always always like, oh, we discovered this new L. Ron Hubbard text. And you're always like, really? Another one? Like okay. another one somehow, but but I'm curious with with Vajrayana. But you could be cynical where, about that, but but then no, no, you... no, I'm saying with with Vajrayana being earnest with my questioning, where do these texts come from? Are they from new? They're called like... terma, so they come from people's minds sometimes. Oh, okay. Sometimes they're buried in mountains and rivers, and 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 teachers bury them for future times. Actually, they actually uh, they actually are. are like the Shambhala tradition that Chogam Trimpa invented was supposed to be a, a something that he discovered that for, that was for our time, for a future time. It wasn't something of the past. Like it is true that Christianity and, and Islam, I was just talking actually, one of my favorite Christians is Ivan Illich, and he says the time of prophecy is over. Like that's gone, that's finished, you know. And now there's no prophets anymore. There's only, you know, friendship. It was kind of a beautiful idea, but I, I think it's wrong. Um I also think it's wrong. And also, yeah. if you look at the history of Christianity, I mean, there's an enormous evolution, right? This is not a single block that's always been the same and that uh, that is obsessed with a single event. You have theology, you have a whole a whole tradition of, of, of uh, we have the theological tradition. You have, have something now that, that basically culminates in, in, in an anthropology, the anthropology of Girard. So, so I think that this straw manning of, of Christianity is completely ridiculous. And I think it's ridiculous to do that with any religion. Even with Islam, that at the moment seems to be in a in a very bad state because it has so much you could call it paganism, right? Going back to really uh, ancient sacrificial elements. But every religion goes through phases like that. And I would posit that if we had like this ideal world where Zoroastrianism would would have been the predominant um, religion, I think it would have gone. Thomas, nobody's ever said that. Institutional problems. You're making straw man arguments here. You're arguing things I haven't said. No, stop saying that then. Stop saying that. I mean, seriously, your world is totally flat, Thomas. You're saying all religions are the same. They're equally valuable. They're not. Different ideas are different value. Truth is infinitely more valuable than lie. Much more valuable. There's a difference between truth and lie. Okay, if you don't even believe there's a difference between truth and lie, you're just a total cynic. Hello, welcome. welcome, we need you. Hello, hello. Talking hello. too much again. Oh. Jesus has entered the building. <laughs> yes, I now have a bed. We were just talking about Christianity, having the usual uh, argument between uh, Alexander and Thomas about about Christianity. Uh, Thomas, though, so can I can I ask what is what is a secondary text, Christian text, that has been broadly accepted into the Christian uh, culture? There's not a single one. There's not a fucking one. Not a single one. That's right. That's the fucking. It's a dogmatic. You could argue that Bob Dylan or something is using a Bible, and you know the Bible is just kind of reinventing itself all the time. Name name one. No, it's not. You're talking about exodology, right? Every time, Andrew. It's the same fucking. uh None of you is even Christian. You're hypocrites. You and Thomas don't go to Christian churches. You don't attend Christian mass. You don't stay in Christian monasteries. You're sitting here just showing off, being flamboyant fucking hypocrites. You're Buddhists. You believe there's a truth that's higher than a lie. No, no, no. Oh, the world is a flat. There are lies. <laughs> the worst lie ever is to tell people they will die after they're dead. It's the biggest fucking lie ever. And it's nasty and evil. It's a lie. You die when you die. A religion that preaches anything else is a lie. 
<laughs> so Alexander and Alex, what do you make of Hegel deriving his idea of the universal subject through coming up through Christianity? Which is very much what he does in the absolutely not. He Christians do not regard Hegel as a Christian. I have never ever met a Christian theologian who thought Hegel was a Christian. He's the death of Christianity. It starts in Western culture with Hegel. He tears my, it down completely. My, my, yeah, my, and my his God is I, empty. It's a void. Well, Sorry. I mean, I mean, there's the like Zizek pointing pointed out. You know, it's not just. Uh, Christ as the son of God that dies on the cross, but it's the concept of God itself that dies. No, that it's a, a Christian God that idea. dies on the and cross. I think it's that a is Christian a very important idea. And that, that is a discussion that really needs to be uh, needs to be held because it's that's it. Uh, discussion is over. Shishik is a dead well, end. Well, maybe We've discussed you, well, Shishik I mean, a thousand you, times. You're well, returning I mean, to the same fucking it, place. That doesn't mean that the discussion is over. I mean, I totally agree with Zizek and with Hegel in this uh, in this respect. Basically, that it's it's the end of the concept of the tyrant god that demands sacrifice, and that goes back to Judaism that that is uh, present in in Christianity, and that is actually also present in Islam. Islam is also a religion that Zoroastrianism invented it. Will you kindly admit that? So Zoroastrianism invented the, the, the end of the blood in, sacrifice in discuss- was invented by fucking Zoroaster, not by Jew, not by Christian, not by you. Zoroaster invented the end of the blood sacrifice. He said it's absolutely pointless. If you read the fucking Gathas, Thomas, you haven't done the studies. Then you would know. Instead of sitting seems, and de- defending and, uh, a Christian, you don't uh, even go to church. Well, I'm not really, I'm not really, well, I think that many, I think that, that the, the idea of going beyond paganism and going beyond sacrificial structure has emerged in, in many different religions. It has emerged in Buddhism, in Hinduism, in Christianity, in Zoroastrianism, Judaism. So this is something that is quite universal at this moment. And th- that is a real interesting thing, right? There is not a single religion left that actually has a systematic, like a, like a, a real well thought of sacrificial structure. All religions agree on, on, on that that is not acceptable anymore, even if they are sometimes not so good at actually sticking to it. So you have many, many uh, um, fanatics who still use uh, who use anti-sacrificial religions to actually go back to paganism. And that happens a lot in, in Islam now. That also happened in Christianity. And my point is that if Zoroastrianism would have been this really successful religion, right, it would have had to cope with the same problems, these returns to paganism, because that's what, what people are doing. Like if you look at, for example, Woke now, Woke is essentially some kind of Christianity, right, that tries to, to, to really protect the victim. And it, it, it abuses that to make more victims. And that is something that is a problem for all religions. And that would have been a problem for No, it is not. Well. And that it's is my Christ, point. It's a Christian problem. That's exactly what Christianity says. No, you see that in all religions. You see that. No, in you do not. You do. No, you do not. No, you do not. No, you do not. No, you do not. Can I bring in Gerard? It's like a total romantic dream on the Zoro religion, right? I think it's ridiculous. Come on, man. I mean, people will be people. They will always try to revert to paganism and sacrificial scapegoating. They will always do that. There is no. There is no no ideal fix to that. I mean, it's just like you sound like an old Marxist who believes that communism will solve everything. Wait a second. I've not said this to fix. I said this one thing at the beginning of this conversation, that the priests are obliged to keep peace going for as long as possible. Eventually war, a sacrificial whatever you talk about, is probably going to happen anyway. You try to keep the peace going for as long as possible. That's all religion does, Thomas. I've never argued anything else. 
And whatever system works best is probably the system you would choose. But at the end of the day, with the total exposure of truths and lies that confront us with the internet, with algorithms storming into our lives right now, you cannot get away with bullshit any longer. They, this is the death of the pyramid religions. This is the death of dogmatic pyramid religions that believe in centralization. The yeah, only that's the death of, of pagan religion, basically. No, religion no, that no, 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 you're mixing up. That's a, that's no, no, we have, you are yourself a Buddhist because it's a decentralized religion and because it's non-dogmatic. The only religions that can survive now are spiritual schools and practices that are decentralized by nature and non-dogmatic and can evolve and change over time. We happen to have a few of those. They've been the quality religions all along the minor. Their time has come. So the spirituality in the internet age, attentionalism as we now call it, will be based on whatever we will give our attention to that has credibility. The death of pop religions is here. The pop religions are over. They no longer, they can't withhold it. I'm perfectly happy to see Islamic Christianity reform. But if they would reform, they would have to skip the fucking fundamental claims they make which is very unlikely after 2,000 years of lying. Well, and here's the thing, right? The fundamental Christian revelation, if you go with it, which is the thing that Gerard is interested in, the Scapegoating Act, happens as one of these decentralized things. It's not co It's not the Catholic structure. It's not the Orthodox structure. That comes much later. That gets centralized and turned into this massive European, fucking Russian, whatever you want to call megalith which I can understand critiquing in the light of the argument you're making, Alexander. But I think Thomas is going, and Gerard are going back precisely to that weird thing that happened with the scapegoating ritual. Okay, so the scapegoating mechanism here starts when you get larger population. It's not nomadic inherent at all. We can have we can have a lot of sort of indigenous culture experts in here that will say that what happens is with larger populations, then you get more pressure. When you create pressure cookers and a pressure cooker, you get lynch bobbing and the scapegoat mechanism is a full effect. You need to blame the king because the king has a larger population than the chief. You didn't execute the chiefs. You start executing kings. Shirad is right. Shirad is fantastic. It's profound. But Shirad really like in today talks about the enormous problems that occur when we finally have larger settled in semi-nomadic populations. And that's when we get the paganism, we get that. It's not inherent to human, it's inherent to larger scales of population. So the question then is this one, and it's way older than Christianity, is how do you maintain or declare or have some kind of a narrative when you can keep larger populations together before they go after each other's throats? Those ideas are called empire and nation, and eventually the Zoroastrians first, then mimicked by Jews, then mimicked by Buddhists, then mimicked by Muslims, then mimicked by Christians, and it's called the congregation. The original one is Danjuman in Persia. It later becomes the synagogue, it becomes the Ummah, it becomes the church. This is the best thing where Thomas and I agree on what organized religion did achieve against paganism. It created a sense of community where blood sacrifice and lynch mobbing was declared unacceptable. Then, of course, the different churches started lynch mobbing each other, which Christians have been very good at, as any Jew can tell. That's a later problem. But at least you keep a community congregation together that's valid and creates value. And what do these congregations mimic? Tribe. They mimic tribe, but they turn tribe into religious concept for a religious community. This, I agree, churches are good at doing the work out there, you know, in helping poor people and drunks or whatever. I gladly work with the Church of Sweden and Sweden will never do the social work. This is the great thing with organized religion, and that's why it also got popular. But the idea was originally Persian, you created community, sacred community. The Buddhists do it wonderfully, it's called the Sangha. You guys know what I mean. 
So this was the best thing organized religion did. And this created at least had its own rules. Within the congregation, you don't lynch mob and you don't blood sacrifice. The problem was that the different congregations went after each other. And nobody's more, has been more ferocious than this than Islamic Christianity because with the dogmatic focus, they just become different dogmatic sects going after each other. If you want to get rid of the problem of Muslims inviting you, make sure the Muslims start killing each other. Same thing with the Christians. And this is the problem with centralized dogmatic religion. It becomes Rome versus Byzantine very quickly, and then they go after each other's throats. Jerusalem, Mecca, this focus on places, this focus on the Axis Mundi is typical for centralized religions over and done with. Won't work. Buddhism doesn't have it. Sorastism doesn't have it. Taoism don't have it. They don't have that one place which is the center of the world. They knew that would be a horrendous problem. The Islam and Christianity have it everywhere. Bethlehem. Golgotha. And I'd like to I'd like to bring back in the free energy shit for a second too, uh, because scapegoating uh, is primarily and, and by the and, and it doesn't really matter what you know anyway. But scapegoating is primarily a mechanism to create once again equanimity and equilibrium within the group. Generally, it's like that motherfucker or someone else, and you can have a proxy who's the scapegoat. Someone else behaved badly, we're going to kill this guy. And everyone understands, okay, everybody get back. In. And, and again, we have this like device that creates uh, equilibrium and stasis and sort of a coherent, less, uh, a more efficient, energetically speaking, uh, tribal, uh, cultural, behavioral agreement. And um, and again, we see we, we see this everywhere. And of course, as it grows larger, you can't just uh, execute people that are beyond the scope of the the tribe, beyond Dunbar's cap. You got to start executing people within it. So the idea that like oh the scapegoat mechanism, it's Gerard, and it's so tied to Christianity. I, I don't. I never get it. It's so much more fundamental. It's about the death drive. It's uh, Gerard is completely lost when it comes to anything internal is purely behavioral. And that's cool. It's totally cool. I'm not actually dissing Gerard. I'm just saying there's a level deeper, which, by the way, Thomas, you already fucking know because you fucking talk about it. And your last email to this group was so much deeper already than Gerard has ever gone. That 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 like, let's talk about that shit. Like, I get it. Gerard's cool. But like, we don't need to like constantly fight about Christianity. Is Christianity good? And like. It's deeper than that. It's we're, we're having an eternal recurrence of the same in this conversation. I'm, I'm afraid, like we've had this conversation so many times. Yeah, yeah but let's drop. Let's drop it then. So, where is the precursor within nomadology? You always have precursors. Catalyst genius was to point out negatology because without negatology, eventology is impossible. Something first has to die for something new to be born. For an event to happen, something else has to go. Same thing here. If you imagine you were a nomadic tribe, you had to teach people to kill each other in case the people were too weak. You had to draw people. I think the way you portrayed it is that behind, behind the matriarch, if you're behind the matriarch, you're dead. There's always a chaos goddess behind the matriarch. All pagan religions have a chaos goddess. Behind Shakti, there's Kali, right? Behind the matriarch, there's something evil and nasty. If you're left behind, you're dead. And I think you even literally had to kill people to survive if you were a nomadic tribe. I have no, no, I think, Absolutely, this was the case. This, I think, is the precursor that you may find in nomadic life that's prior to Girard, but points into the direction where Girard jumps in is when you get settled culture and river valleys. And that's when the scapegoat mechanism becomes much more profound. What does Thomas think about that? Well, well, I mean, 
so there are well that that's 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 all very interesting but 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 then i would like to know what is your what is your uh how did how did culture then emerge how did how did um language emerge how did how did the how did the archaic humans survive the emergence of of mimetic of mimetics because because this this sacrificial mechanism has a specific function right it is because if you so apes and monkeys they don't really they don't really do mimetics so they don't go into this competition and humans do and because you have this competition you have an enormous amount of conflict and that scapegoat mechanism that is there to kill that conflict so that's there for right from the start so language which is basically the sort of first sign the first signifier is that is the that scapegoat so language and and sacrifice and religion and humanity itself it all arises at the same time now i am i am absolutely willing to discuss alternative theories Girard might be wrong, and I'm st currently studying somebody called Eric Gans, who seems to have a slightly different take on things. So I'm totally open for discussing this. But if you say that scapegoating emerged in, in larger populations, that might be true. But then my question is, so what is your primal scene? So what 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 happened then with respect to, to keeping the keeping the the, the the aggression that is associated with uh, with mimesis at bay? So there's I agree with you on the, all of these things because Sherrod is brilliant at these things, and this is also a present event. Sherrod is all over the place. So are you, by the way, in the book. The thing though is that there must be precursor. I think the precursor, we could probably, it's just a hypothesis here. I'm throwing it to you, it's not in the book. But what if the precursor here is that there are circumstances where you must kill your own and you kill people of your own tribe? They probably much more brutal than actually just a scapegoat, but they enables it because if you kill your own, like, okay, so, you know, there are 11 seats for 12 guys. One guy has to go. Suddenly there are 10 seats and 11 guys left. One guy has to go. We all know that an organization becomes more efficient if you throw out the weakest guy in the organization. So th this, this, I think, is fundamental to tribal as well. I think people were pretty merciless with that. They were all in the same game. And you could easily sacrifice people if the tribe as a whole became stronger. Remember that I'm intensely tribal in my thinking. I think Sherrard agrees on that. I'm also prior to Sherrard in the sense that I'm trying to figure out nomadology. And I think the trick is to, to figure out here the precursor, like negatology is teventology. Precursor here is that there are, there are moments when the sacrifice of your own, the sacrifice of, of a member of the own tribe is actually can be defended. And the fact that that exists in the nomadic life escalates and explodes with larger populations, settled populations, the Sima nomadic. And I think especially when the Sima nomadic stormed into the settled, which was the dominant mode of warfare all the way up to the Mongols, the Sima nomadic won over the settled. The Sima nomadic just rode in, pillaged, plundered, Vikings, Mongols, all of them did, until the Chinese invented gunpowder Basically, settled populations didn't stand a chance when the sea nomadic on their horses rode in and stormed in. And what did the sea nomadic do? Mass slaughter. Well, they mass slaughter because it was the opposite. But the scapegoat mechanism then turns inward. So the only trick is to find out when do you kill one of your own? And that definitely, I would definitely agree, is certainly nomadic. And that explodes into the scapegoat mechanism as a precursor once we have larger populations. Well, but what, okay, good. But so what is in to how is is that killing of the tribal members different from scapegoating? I mean, 
It isn't fundamentally because precursor, just like death isn't different from the event in the fundamental sense, but the negation of the geisha is not the negation. So what happens is that larger populations should get the scapegoat mechanism and explodes. And then because that emerges, it's different. Scapegoat mechanism is different from just killing one of your own to killing many of your own. Uh, then certainly that explodes. And this is where Sherrod is fucking genius. Getting rid of the weaker link is different than 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 killing an arbitrary Victim. Yes, exactly, exactly, yeah. exactly. That's the difference. That's the difference. And the arbitrary concept of the fact that you don't have the information any longer, you don't have the narrative any longer on why this guy needs to be killed. The connection, the logical connection, why the 12th guy has to die because the 11 chairs has disappeared. And suddenly you can start playing with that as a weapon. And it leads all the way up to the ultimate scapegoat mechanism phenomenon, which of course the mass murder of the Jews by the Nazis. An entire people was supposed to be scapegoated. This but is why Sherard comes out of after 1945. And we have to deal with the fact that scapegoat mechanism again exploding their faces worse than ever. I would I would I would say though that the that the communication of the scapegoat mechanism is nevertheless the exact same psychologically and phenomenologically as the killing of the weakest link, which is that we everything, everybody needs to be on par. If someone's not on par, someone's going to get killed. And it's the same thing that happens now with woke or whatever the case, it doesn't matter how abstracted it becomes. And, and so it, you know, and when you say that apes don't do it, well, yes, they do. They're, they're constantly, I was just watching a show about apes now, they, they're constantly in danger of like, they're, they're killing babies left and right. Um, yeah, 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 of course they do, but it's not that they, they don't, it's not in the same way. I mean, they have a dominance hierarchy. Yeah, but the dominance hierarchy also has to do with who's weak, right? There's, there's, it's strength versus uh, strength as a, as a modifier of, uh, or as a. But Gerard's like, victim isn't weak. He's, he's arbitrary. Yeah, that, no, 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 but it's slightly not, different. No, no, no. Gerard's victim is not, it's, it's arbitrary. That's a, that's not the right way to look at, at a, at a scapegoating victim that's fully arbitrary. It's fully related to homogenization and again, equalization and stabilization of the equilibrium of the group. It is not fully arbitrary. It is about creating an equilibrium, and so is the killing of the weakling. It's about. Well, well, what, I mean, Girard has written a lot about the choice of the scapegoat, and the, the, the scapegoat is is somebody who's weak, right? So it's a child or 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 a woman, typically, and and also somebody who doesn't have any relatives. But but not always. Sometimes it's the king. I'm just so, saying. Yeah, like, but, but then it's the king has failed. It's the king who is being blamed. It's a blame. Like if Putin would back off. From the invasion of Ukraine, he'd be gone in no time at all because Russian culture today hates weakness in the sense it's yeah the king is the, put, put, the, the king is it's a falling king it's a falling king that gets killed it's not it's not like success it's not the king comes back and just won the battlefield no right. he has totally dictatorial power no it's the king who just started making mistakes was blamed for the rain or the or the dry or whatever he he's blamed for the mistakes and then he blamed the king kill and that's the, universal the, sorry the reason I, I don't mean to push this but the reason i bring up the fact that it's arbitrary is because the scapegoat is supposed to be a lie right whereas if you have yeah. a company and the guy is weak and you kick him out it's because he's not doing a good job it's not the same thing as just choosing somebody as a symbolic victim right that's the whole thing is that, that that's the difference between human and animals it's like a symbolic victim it's it, it dealt with in the mimesis of you know the frontal brain and how we create abstraction and how we create some kind of a you know a, a totem of, of a victim or, or something like that 
but the communication is the same. It's the same communication. We all get the same message. Whether or not you kill the guy who was acting like a fucking schmuck or you kill some other weakling who wasn't part of it, but the same mess, we get the same message. Motherfucker, like, you're dead. Like, get back in line, behave differently. Otherwise, if there wasn't the same message, the mechanism wouldn't work. The mechanism Wait. works precisely because it ends up communicating that you need to uh, behaviorally adjust or keep yourself in line in order to stay within the good graces of the group to which well, you belong. I, I don't know if that completely lines up with how Girard's framing it. It's more of a kind of ecstatic catharsis. It's not like a that's structure saying get that, back in line. It's more of a collective orgasmic release. Following. Sure, it's the or absolutely you have to have the orgasmic release and the the sense of ritual and that release and all of that, but still it serves the interests of status anxiety because you could be next that idea that you might be next even though it's irrational that needs to be there in order for the behavioral uh uh, uh you could be russell brand alex <laughs> i could be i could be next this is absolutely correct <laughs> and 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 the, the you could be next is the killing of your own. The, you, you could be killed even within your own tribe. It's the precursor, the nasty precursor of this. And then we see the darkness and all of it. And I, I think even Girardi would agree on that one. That the precursor certainly possibly. He hasn't excluded that in his work. He's just he's just working with what happens in permanent settlement. And when permanent settlement starts slaughtering each other like mad. That's why comparing to anthropologists like Sergei Turchin. Like, wh wh how do we deal with the massive bloodbaths that occurred? We started populating the river valleys and we had population explosions. So there was a mechanism there, which is that you are not guaranteed to survive within your own tribe. But on the other hand, nobody's tribal puts themselves before the tribe. We have to understand that all of individualism, starting from Descartes forward, is an exclusively modern Western phenomenon. There are no individuals ever in a tribe. Nothing. So the tribe is before you anyway, and that's probably why there's even a point to the scapegoat mechanism that people were killed and didn't even protest. You can look at the Stalin trials. I mean, the point with Stalinism as the ultimate dogmatic religion, by the way, that's why Shishik uses it, it's that in Stalin, who was a Mastakite more than anything, the, the people stood there and confessed, although they haven't done it. They lied in court because they were told beforehand, if you lie in court, you save the party. You save the Communist Party by lying because we have to kill you, although you're innocent, and therefore you will lie. So it wasn't individualist at all. Stalin, he loved Mastak. This was the collective, worship of the collective, but tied to dogmatic. That's why it's the ultimate horror. The ultimate the way, is that it's, it's the connection of dogma and collective into one, which means that you're done and you're just material for somebody to do whatever they please with. And this is where the anagic comes into the picture. We talked about it pre-discussion. It's in the book. The, the scapegoat mechanism explodes, a lynch bomb explodes when the anagic is allowed to rule without anybody speaking up against it. The anagic is the voice. It's the voice we got. Have you heard what she did? Have you heard what he did? Should we go after them? Because if we go after them, then I'm saved and we kill them instead. Right. The anagic put on a uniform, he rises to power in no time at all. Hitler and Stalin. Okay. Historically speaking, this is where the old organized religions agree is that if you have a hyperject that stands up to the anagic, even if the hyperject sacrifices himself in the process, you have somebody stands up and speaks the truth. 
who doesn't go with the lie that Yana Jack comes with, who doesn't go with the lie that Jews should be killed and Jews don't deserve to die and Jews are nasty or whatever, which is the racist lie that the Anajic preaches. The hyperject sets up and said, no, there's actually nothing wrong with the Jew. They're a minority in our culture, actually a very successful minority. They should be as protected as anybody else. Stop killing them. You know, the hyperject is the interesting voice as opposed to the Anajic. So we philosophically speaking have two different voices. And here is where maybe really so Austin. The hyperject speaks the truth, whereas the anodict sides with a lie. Fundamentally, the lynch mob is built on a lie. And therefore, according to Gerard, what we agree is that there's somebody that's very Christian. Hmm? That's very Christian. Yes, I would agree, but it's not that the Christians invented it, it's not, Thomas. It's not exclusively Christian. It's not no, exactly. No, no. It's, it's, a, it's a universal insight, which I think many religions have come across. And Rajiraj wrote a book about sacrifice. Yeah, I know. Which yeah. is about Hinduism yeah. and Buddhism. So yeah. this whole story about Gerard being only about Christianity. Is no, 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 no. I've, I, I've, like I, I've read the books you recommended about Girardians and Hinduism, and they're all crap, Thomas. The Girardians <laughs> have not studied anything but Catholic Christianity. They're stuck with it. We have to go beyond Girard. I'll finally close the Girard book for a while and say that there are other religious, other traditions that are deeper, more profound, that have more of a future to them, rather than trying to sit just the last cynical Christians with Christ dead on the cross and having it I think that's, that's a question of a practical implementation. And there, I think there's an open question, right? What will be the, the religion of the future? Will it be some kind of reformed Christianity and or even Islam? Will Zoroastrianism suddenly rise to the occasion or Judaism or something completely new? Maybe, uh, you know, Scientology 2.0. But this is a very different question. I mean, the principles will be the same. How do you deal with scapegoating? How do you deal with 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 this with this mechanism that constantly comes up again and that people enjoy very very much? And that's the real question. And I think we shouldn't we shouldn't kind of have a romantic dream on one specific religion is going to save us and other religions are pop religions. And, no, 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 Thomas, Thomas, shut up! You've said this a thousand times already. Thomas, we've heard this a thousand times because there, there is no fixed religion that will be valid for a very for for. Two 2,000, 3,000 years in a row. I mean, if you look at the history of religion, these religions are constantly updated. And in fact, if you look at the Bible, that's a process document par excellence because the Old Testament is full of uh, of mechanisms that are still very pagan. The tyrant in the sky, the, the wrathful god that, that, that kills people. Thomas, you've and done this routine now a thousand times. Thomas, we've heard you say this story, a thousand uh, times. A new story on, uh, puts a new story on the table. So you have a process. Religions are processes and they always need to be updated for the current time. Sorry that I didn't allow you to uh, interrupt me, uh, Alexander. I know you're not used to that. Christianity and Islam do not allow for any updates, period. You're bullshitting yourself enormously here. They do not allow for that. I've stayed in Christian monasteries, the fucking Virgin Mary and the Christ baby every fucking morning for 14 hours every fucking day. It's absolute repetitive madness. Christianity does not allow the event. It fell on its own ideology. It, it, it was so obsessed with one single event that it just forgot that events happen all the time. There is no such reformation of Christianity and there never was. And there never will be. Everybody's right. There is it's nothing the added to the Bible. Come the on. Bible is a closed book. Just it's like turning the page here. Yeah, I, I know the Reformation was just something that happened uh, to other people, you know? Like, turning uh, the page. Let's talk about archetypology. That's a beautiful thing. Thomas, over. Next topic. Next topic. 
Can I suggest something that might be interesting? Uh, and maybe it's just be a short-lived thing, but to connect what Owen was saying to what I was saying, um, I've been writing about this recently. Uh, status anxiety to me is very fundamental to just belonging. So you, you want to remain within the good grace of the group to which you belong. It's just a very fundamental thing. So we have this status anxiety. The scapegoat mechanism becomes potentially, I think, uh, a ritualistic uh, sort of uh, ritual time event because the release is actually related to the status anxiety. Because once we identify someone who is the like who is doing something wrong, suddenly for a moment, we are not in jeopardy of being excommunicated. They, uh, all of that energy is now focused onto someone else. And because of that sort of pent up energy of the status anxiety being released upon an object, uh, we enter the sort of ritualistic state and that fervor uh, which becomes that sort of like, you know, a non-dynamical, uh, mentally lost state. And so that the very thing sort of just ends up cyclical. So when Thomas asked, like, what's the religion of the future? Is there any possibility of getting out of the scapegoat mechanism, which probably there isn't. But if there was an answer, it would be somehow to create a society which reduces the sense of status anxiety. And I think where to tie this back to what Bard is saying, when when tribes are small enough, there isn't a scapegoat mechanism. I mean, yeah, you you scapegoat people external to the membrane, but within the membranic of the tribe, there's not typically scapegoating. And that's probably because in small sub-dumbar tapped tribes, you actually don't have as much status anxiety. So you don't have as much phenomenological need to release that status anxiety onto a particular subject because you know who you are right you know you know where you, you belong you're and... safe within this mm -hmm. tribe. this is the caste system exactly what it is you're tied to a caste of the day you're born women love it more than men because women are the ones who really do the lynch model so the reason why caste systems worked in densely populated large societies with growing populations was simply because you are this position you can't change it you know state society because state society is that you could climb higher or you might fall lower. You reduce state society, that's precisely why the caste system was the so far most successful method for keeping peace for long periods of time. The only reason the caste system is falling apart is that now society is technologically changing so fast that you must instead do adoption, you must move outside or you're not born to this any longer. State society returns. We have woke culture and things like that because of it. And woke culture doesn't stay in China or India, but it probably would if they had, had gotten further out of the caste system. It certainly catches on anywhere where the caste system does not exist. So the problem was that the cultures with our cults of transparency, where the caste system was removed, like Islamic Christianity, are precisely the cultures that are full of lynch mobbing and full of woke mobs again, because state society has returned. We didn't lock it up. That's the problem with Christian and Muslim culture. That's why... The pogroms are Christian and Muslim phenomena. It, it, it makes perfect sense ever. So the, the question here is, though, we will not change at all. And ideas don't change unless technology changes first. I'm totally adamant in my work. There must be technological opportunity. And technology can make everything for the worse, everything for the better for humanity. Here's the thing, though. Once the algorithms start establishing themselves onto humans, finally, maybe intelligence could even happen because it hasn't existed before. But even in its roughest form, whatever will happen, truth will, will win over lie in the sense that it's very, very hard to maintain lies or spread lies eventually for anything else but entertainment value. 
anything else if you go looking for something. This is why in Protestant event, we just start discussing truth properly. And there are three different types of truth. They're irreconceivable to one another. We lay it out in chapter two. There's the logos and the mythos and the pathos. They must not be mistaken for one another, but they are truths. They're not lies. And the thing with the algorithms is that the lies, the, the, the algorithms is that they actually embrace truth production. So you have more mythical, mythical truth. You have more pathical truth. Hey, we got pornography everywhere, right? We 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 got more more logical truth as well. Rational processes, etc. Scientific processes are now escalating. The fact that truth now wins is not due to us being superior, having had the idea. It's simply due to technologies that are rewarding truth. This leads into what we call essentialism that Ebert and I've discussed before. I think this is the future of philosophy. It has to deal with essentialism as opposed to capitalism. Capitalism was the truth is whatever you is money. But with essentialism, the truth becomes the data. And this means truth and lie are now incredibly important concepts as we go forward. You cannot randomly kill anybody because you lied about them any longer and get away with it because it will catch up with you in a way it didn't do before. Well, culture hasn't worked. Algorithms, algorithms, algorithms. Tie the algorithms to blockchain, you lock up history forever. It's very hard to argue with something that's been said or done at a certain point in time if it's tied to blockchain. These technologies will change history. This is why I'm adamant the truth can win, simply because technology promotes truth at this stage in history. But isn't isn't a pathical truth potentially a woke truth? No, it's not. I don't think I don't think any of the people who are involved with woke feel anything about these things at all, except that they're revengeful and resentful and hate somebody. And somebody's more successful than has got a bigger dick than they have or more money in the bank of they do. If they see a chance to go after them, they go after them. That's not truth. That's just resentment. It's a resentment-driven culture, and that's exactly why eventually cancel culture has to cancel itself out. You, oh, you pathic truth is complex emotion, right? Like art or something, right? Pathical truth is newscasts, pornography, violence, cutting your fucking head off. It's anything that's absolute real. Real and Lacan is pathical truth. Symbolic and Lacan is logical truth. Imaginary in Lacan is mythical truth. Lacan sets it out, Hegel sets it out, Hegel creates the triads of dialectics, and then Lacan comes in and says, symbolic, imaginary, and then the real, that comes back and haunts us through the symbolic and the imaginary. This is the path of the logos and the mythos. Well, what we're well, doing Lacanian, is that we're taking psychoanalysis real, and turning to narratology. That's what the we Lacanian do. real is the is the the thing that cannot be set, right? No, that's the that's the that's the No, no, no. The real the real Lacan Yes. The real the real Lacan is the, the real-time newscast when suddenly a plane flies into the second skyscraper in America and people just realize this is not what people thought it was. This is not an accident. So but that's the real. That's that the has real. anything that's to do the with the Lacanian real. The Lacanian real is basically the, 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 the thing that cannot be set. It's the... No, it's not, no, it's not. That's the point, is that it breaks apart the imaginary and the symbolic. Exactly, exactly. The symbolic and the imaginary are basically talking around the real, right? So, so the symbolic is the, is the... The symbolic is basically the myth that you are telling that you... It's the story, right? It's basically the, the story that you tell around, around killing the scapegoat. Listen, listen, Thomas, if you if you watch one of those little Arab movies when a guy slowly kills a guy with a really hard knife and cuts his cuts his neck off, when that happened, 
when you literally watched it while it happened, you were in the real. As soon as it's over, the guy's dead lying there. The commentary exactly. starts, the imaginary kicks in. Yeah. That's unspeakable. That's the word, right? It's, it's something the moment. That's, the thing, yeah, the thing that you cannot put into words, right? That's yeah. like, right. Any, like any real. Any, yeah, you like cannot put it into words. You, True. You in, cannot put the past. You help people yeah. to, to talk about these things that they cannot talk about. And then you reconfigure the imaginary and the and the symbolic. So you have another story. And the imaginary is, of course, how you look at, at the others as rivals, as obstacles, as, as uh, so, so, yeah. Um, and then going back to to um, what so I, I agree that so why isn't there any scapegoating in in uh, in situations where you have you have like let's say bubbles or membranes right it's because it's because if you if you bringing together bringing a lot of people in into contact with each other that is very dangerous and that's why why all societies have always had mechanisms to kind of make sure that 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 people were kept apart from each other being connected to a lot of people all the time like we are now in our modern digital world is extremely is extremely dangerous and that's also why we have these outbursts of scapegoating right i mean now it's russell brand now russell brand is is is, is uh, i saw that today i haven't followed it maybe he's guilty maybe he's not but you can see the mechanism right it's this this is this jouissance oh we got him and then everybody kind of floods into it and that is why 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 bringing people into contact on a, on such a large scale like what we're doing now in our society is extremely dangerous. So there, I, there I, are, I agree, uh, agree. Uh, so I it was agree. it was it, yeah, it was easier to do rural, and therefore we kind of feel religious, and then we moved to urban and got more densely populated together. This is not something that's new historically, though. This is why I return to Zoroastrianism. Zoroaster Vishtaspa asked himself the sincere question. With much larger populations, much more densely populated, new problems will occur. This is the beginning, and they were the ones who dropped blood sacrifice and slavery as principles and see if they could get around it. They preached that. So they replaced the blood sacrifice with the fire. So you turn the fire and you said to meditate in front of the fire. The fire worship in Persia became the stone you meditate in front of in Buddhism and in Taoism. And that's exactly what the spiritual traditions that do that are the ones that are immunized against blood sacrifice, hopefully. And therefore, I think they're superior today. That's the point. Yeah, like in the Vajrayana, you make offerings of fire and smoke and, and water. These are the elements that destroy things, right? So you make an offering of the destructive element. It's like you got the sacrifice left but without the blood. There's nothing there that is bloody. There's no animal or no human there. The sacrifice itself is emptied. All religions today have technology that went beyond scapegoating. All religions. I don't think there's any religion left that, that is really that really has scapegoating at the core. For some reason, all, all I think it, it wouldn't survive. I think you can see it in the 20th century, right? The, the Nazis tried to bring it back. And and that lasted what at most what ten years or something like that, and then it 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 collapsed cat catastrophically, and that was the most one of the most technologically advanced uh, um, regions in the world, right? They could it, it's simply not sustainable. You cannot do it anymore, and that's why all religions they try to kind of get away from this pestilence, this scapegoating that can easily uh, spiral out of control, and they 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 are good at it or they are not good at it to different extents. And it's not clear to me at all what uh, what what the, the religion is going to solve it, or what technology will emerge that's going to solve it. So I have a lot of questions. I'm not so so sure about but oh, this is 
here it went wrong or this religion didn't figure it out. It seems that all religions are struggling with it. And some religions are, are successful at, it at some point. Like but Thomas, 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 please. In please. the period Tho of... Thomas, of you, you said... Thomas, like Thomas, you have said this a thousand times. Some religions are not successful at it. But Thomas, of course, you, you said... also have the pathetic truth and that seems to be just shouting until you shut up the people who are trying to make a point. Is that pathos or what is it? Is that practical truth? You just shout at people? No, I think you should bother to study other religions. I think you should actually study. Instead of repeating the same mantra every time you talk about this, there's no difference between different religions. We're starting with the same thing and nobody has an answer to anything. Well, no, no, nobody's going to get the answer to you unless you start studying and see if there are possible better and worse solutions. The thing is that you make decisions at the end of the day. You try to find out which is the better one and which is the worse one. There are destructive mentalities. There are constructive mentalities. There are attempts to make constructive solutions to problems, the destructive solutions. Any fucking engineer out there has to go for the constructive solution and build better engineering you're not you, you're trying to you're trying to promote some kind of cynically flat nihilistic worldview in these conversations i don't buy it well, i don't buy it i think i think i'd like Thomas, I'd like Thomas, i really think things but without kind of like formulating like prefabricated outcomes there's a lot of stuff that is not clear you know, like like for example, scapegoating. Did that did that increase when 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 societies get bigger? So all of these things there are a lot a lot of questions there that are that are not really well studied. So I think that why, I do why, why, would, we, why would we constantly. constantly come up with with kind of prefabricated outcomes? No, I work I mean, with I work with data why, why anthropology constantly, Thomas. I do the work. That's exactly the point. There's an enormous difference between Persia and Egypt in antiquity. There's enormous difference between dictatorship and power sharing before you install rule in any culture. Oh dear, what am I learning here? Listen, Whoa. there, there oh, are wow. truths and there are lies, Thomas. <laughs> there are better and there are worse plans and outcomes or processes. There are superior yeah. and there are inferior ways of Let me ask you. <clears throat> yeah. Some people have bigger penises than other people. It's like... That's... Some have done the work and some haven't. Okay. Alexander, so there's a question that is on my mind for for a couple of minutes. So uh, maybe you may uh, explain that. What's the relationship between the uh, scapegoat mechanism and the event? Because I sometimes have the feeling that those two things might go together. I mean, we are talking about the Russell Brand thing, and it's obvious to me that there is some form of scapegoating going on, independently of if he's uh, uh, done those things or not. But that's but not that's not that's not an event. That's not an event. Event exactly, is exactly new. It's novel. Exactly. Let me speak. So, but on the yeah. other side, you have a thing like um, YouTube demonetize, um, demonetizing him because of these, um, you know, allegations. That's new. That's an event, isn't it? No, no, it's not an event. It's a death. Yeah, but 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 to your point, Tom, uh, Christ was an event, and that was a scapegoat mechanism. So you have a scapegoat mechanism can be an event. Listen, right. listen, there are no objective events ever. You have to understand my philosophy doesn't do objective truth. I'm not a Platonist. Events become events afterwards. So Christ on the cross event for a Christian, it's not an event at all for a non-Christian like myself. I couldn't care less. So the, the, the events are always done in hindsight and we must rewrite them all the time. 
This is the point with doing transcendental emergentism, which is the really hard work of the process and event book. It's basically laying out the fundamental metaphysical, metaphysical system, which is based on principles and not on laws. This is the point. What becomes an emergence is not an emergence in itself objectively. Human beings, like a Hegelian subject, projects the emergence onto something which is spectacular compared to anything else. It's not reducible to what preceded it according to the observer who defines it. Now, what was an emergence in the past will not, might not be considered an emergence in the future. Okay, physics, biology, chemistry, you know, subconsciousness, I would argue, emergences, historically speaking, in a huge universal history that probably looks like it's 40 million years old or even older. Okay, 40 million years old older. But here's the point, by doing TE first and understanding that the transcendental transcendentality means that it's not fixed. It's only in the mind of a series of Hegelian subjects who intersubjectively agree that we agree that these points in time are more important than the rest. History changed forever when they happen. Once you realize that that's the case with the universe as a whole before even human beings exist, you can start looking at human history. We call that paradigmatics. There are certain paradigms. We now walk into the internet age. We're confused. We need reformed religion. We need reformed philosophy. Need to understand what kind of world we live in. We need to avoid atomic war. We need to avoid a climate change that goes out of hand. What do we do? We try to reinterpret history until now and therefore rewrite all of history according to predicaments we're in now. So all of it. How does that relate to um, all of it is a precursor to the Internet society, meaning you start and start reading all of society and history's communication societies of different types. I'm wondering about archetypology because this is what I've been thinking about. I like the idea of archetypes, you know, uh, the rebirth of archetypes constantly. But you're saying there's a there's a shifting thing happening here. So, So so can you explain that? There's archetypology and there is paradigmatics. They both are in flux, but archetypology changes way, way, way slower. So we are archetypological fundamentally. We're the same size, the same brains we were 5,000 years ago. Civilization has so far had hardly any effect on us as we grew up. Maybe we have less nutritious food, even our brains are smaller than they used to be. Whatever. Archetypology means that what was shaped, this is about Darwinian forms, not Platonist forms. What was shaped evolutionarily over millions of years to become the humans we are today is an archetypology. Okay, since it doesn't hardly change or it changes very slowly, glacially, don't fight it. For example, say that men and women are the same. Ridiculous. Archetypologically speaking, women and men in groups especially are very different. Okay, so once you see that, then you can do the rest, what's time specific for the time you live in, and which is likely to change very fast is paradigm. And therefore we call that paradigmatics. Values are a mix of the two. Values are archetypological. We're looking for those values like family, love, uh, community, those things we try to get tribal, all those things are archetypological values. The other value specific, should I be on my laptop or should I be on my smartphone or turn them off today? Paradigmatic decisions. Those paradigmatic decisions are half our values and they change. And here's Nietzsche's point. The archetypological we must not fight. The paradigmatic we must actually get adjusted to as quickly as we can. That means that if you understand the internet's taking over the world, maybe you should be good at the internet because if you're good at the internet, you become powerful, influential, and you do okay. And then you probably marry a very status anxious wife and marries you because you're successful. Now, this, these are values. The values are these two things. So nihilism is basically the collapse of the paradigmatics. 
Nihilism is historical returning occurrence. It's a death. It's a death that is a precursor of an event. The death, the negatology called nihilism is the death of a paradigm. Today, that's politics, which is dying. Donald Trump, it's all theater now. Academia is dying, mass media is dying, the public space is dead and over, all of these things are dying. Dying dramatically, they're fighting back and they're hating the internet, every one of them, manipulating, corrupting, and conforming the internet as much as they can, but they're dead and over. What is replacing them are new netocracies, and the rise of these new netocracies is the affirmative part, according to Nietzsche and nihilism, which is the freedom to create the world anew. Well, it's not entirely right. The archetypology you still have to live with, this was Nietzsche's struggle, but the paradigmatics, is perfectly open to you to try new things to see if you can succeed. And this is why we leave a paradigm and move to a new one. The lesson learned from the Exodus and Judaism is not that you move from one country to the next, the way you migrate from, say, Europe to America, or they could be applied to space. But the real lesson learned from Exodology is that it's actually paradigmatic. It's a time phenomenon. I leave an old age and move into a new age because an event has happened. The internet came along, wow. Okay, probably the biggest thing that ever happened to humans. Yes. So I value as an event. The other previous events are the precursors to the internet. And it turns out communication and language were the key all the time to move to the stage we're at right now. Then I can start mapping what it would be like to be a winner or a master in the internet society. And that's the niche and project we're pursuing. That's it. Values. What are the constructive values that makes you a winner in this society? I don't count the Christianity and Islam to even be in this game at the end of the day, to be honest. But if they can't reform, fine. Here is a question, Alexander. So uh, you said a few times in the last few minutes, you don't do objectivity in your philosophy and it's Hegelian subject birthing itself, smashing through its own, I guess, imaginaries. Um, some of the Hegelians we know would say that, as I said in my first comment, that this, like, the, the death of God embodied in Christ is where this line of thinking begins. I think you're saying, though, that you can go deeper into Judaism and Zoroastrianism to get that same idea, and therefore the idea of the crucifixion being the most important thing to focus on for philosophy, the death of God, is a dead end. Am I Yeah, he's dead. Get over it. That's as easy as that. Hegel had opponents that came afterwards, and one of them who I love is Karl Marx. We read Karl Marx into this book. This book is just as much Marxist as it is Zoroastrian. We reinterpret Karl Marx as a Jewish theologian who discusses the possibility of leaving a world of slavery to become masters in a new world. He is a paradigmatic philosopher. He's obsessed with the Exodus. He's a fucking Jew. His people are called the proletariat. He hates the poor people in the streets of London. He doesn't see the lump and proletariat in any future. He thinks there's a new elite that could beat the shit out of the capitalist and be better capitalism than the capitalists are and then overcome capitalism to create what we today would call eternalism. The only thing that is the socialism failed. Karl Marx guessed widely and had wild guys around him want to do socialism. That failed miserably. But so did Judaism prior to living Egypt because it probably was atonism. So... You fail and you can then redo the project by rethinking it. I want to do that. I want to rethink what it means to go from capitalism to tensionalism onto communism. 
I seriously want to do that. I think the proletariat today are the netocrats. We wrote it in the netocrats 23 years ago. This is a Marxist book. The netocrats are a new elite. Nietzsche only talked about the lonely aristocrat standing against the world. He's the last individualist. This is why my friends say, you know, Peter Towson said once, well, why didn't each have a best buddy? And I said, that's exactly why we need Marx, because Marx had best buddies. He had the proletariat. So the proletariat are the chosen people who walk into the new age. Anybody out there right now who grabs the internet and becomes an informationalist, like big tech guys do, who becomes a censocrat and is willing to kill politics, anybody who becomes a protopian willing to kill academia artistically, anybody who does these things and walk into any of these three autocracies is a winner. That's what our work is about. The death of Christ on the cross is completely redundant to the storytelling. It's well, a feudal I mean, story. The, the anthropology that will will lie at uh, on on will will that is lying on underneath a big transformation that's going to happen, and the people who will make a successful transformation they will understand anthropology. So this is the era of of uh, of uh, of uh, anthropological pragmatism. Things will will work if you understand how humans how humans function, and if you take this story of the death of Christ and 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 the whole biblical story as some kind of like in a literal way that is in a very in a very unproductive way, then then you will be dead in the water. But if you understand this as a revelation of the anthropology, as kind of like a, a very kind of an illustration that you can find in many different religions, that that is a very different. But Thomas, Thomas, we give medals. We give medals to young men. Are, we give medals to young men who die in battlefields all the time. Our religions are successful to the extent that they understand anthropology, and they never understand anthropology completely. They always see through a glass darkly, and that's why they kill and why they have institutions that fail. And that will always be so. You will always have failing institutions, but hopefully they will fail better and better. You know, that's what Cabell says, right? Die and die better. And that's yeah. the only thing that we can do. But the, the, listen, we still have politics. We still have the public space. We still have mass media academia if the internet hadn't arrived. The internet killed them. Yeah, I mean, all yeah. of these institutions will 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 either reform drastically, and that includes religions, or they will disappear. Yes, but it's it's absolutely not clear at at this moment where where what will emerge from 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 this. Case. No, but Thomas, you never dare to say anything. You're just, you're just covering your ass all the time. I dare. I fucking dare. You owe it to me that I dare. You I don't owe dare you exactly ever. nothing. I you owe do, you nothing. Yeah, you're just a trickster sitting there trying to kill everything you hear. But you're not daring anything. Can you please dare sometime? I dare. I'm not saying this is going to happen. I'm saying this could happen. Use the opportunity. That's that. I'm a philosopher. I'm not a scientist. I'm allowed to speculate. I'm allowed to dream. And I dream with the people who read my books. I'm not a cynic like you, and I'm not a nihilist. Really, yeah. I dare. <laughs> you don't. You never dare. Sorry, no, you're I a good like... trickster. You're good, no, I'm, but I'm, don't I'm ever sure compare me to you. To your expectations, you know. I mean, listen, you're not a philosopher. You're a trickster. You're fine, but you're not a philosopher because you don't dare. Oh, no, no, I'm definitely not a philosopher. No, That's you totally don't. But philosophers totally dare, Thomas. Somebody has That's... to dare. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but there's there's daring and there's being wrong or just being, I don't know, pedantic and shouting a lot. No, you're talking etiquette. No, you're going woke. You lost it. Seriously. <laughs> etiquette yeah. is nothing to do with this. It's nothing to do with the arguments. I'm trying to get you out of that fucking ritualistic Girardian loop of just repeating yourself. 
can we just talk about new things and expand our mindset and go deeper into things? Yeah, go and ahead. Nobody's stopping you. Go ahead. Be my guest. Here, I'll mute myself. No, 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 no. But I asked Alex something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, Alex, you were talking about the uh, the status of anxiety with regard to the, uh, the the rituals a while ago, right? And one of the things I've been thinking about doing Cadell's current course on Lacan is he's making this point about the castration anxiety and ultimately the impotent body of the infant being born into the world and being totally fucking useless for several months, if not years, and dependent. And having this experience, a phenomenology experience of having a body that's being pulled to pieces, right? And I heard that and I went, oh yeah, that's the fucking Dionysus story, right? And that is a very different Dionysus to Gerard's Dionysus, which is the, the victim being torn apart. It's actually an image of the phenomenology of being a, an impotent body, a body being shredded. And so then I started to think about, okay, this the tragic art, the Dionysian art being about going into the state of the, the impotent body and affirming the castration as opposed to being about the, the murder of the victim and maybe one way to overcome this yes. castration is to kill a victim because then that victim becomes the castrated one rather than the community for a moment but it's even more apparent to me that if we have one master model if we have one like ultimate model Girardian model it is Christ and what is Christ He's a victim. And so what do we see? Yes, we see a lot of people trying to point out bad people and victimize them. But what are they actually doing? They're pointing out their own oppressor and the victimizing themselves. These people are against me. Those people are against me. Those people are against me. And we, we falsely see it, I think, as, oh, they're victimizing the people at the end of the point of their finger. But what they're really doing phenomenologically, I think, is creating their own heroic arc because we understand that identity requires opposition and we understand that the heroic arc requires an oppressor. And what woke really is, at the end of the day, let's say all things being equal, everything has been sorted. What it really is, where its real power lies, is in its ability, if it ever discovers this ability, and I think that this would be a profound moment of confrontation with the real is that there is no reason for woke beyond its reasonless the reasonlessness within itself that requires opposition the pure requirement of opposition if we can claim that where opposition simply is the necessity not the is and we understand our 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 struggles to be incidental to our requirement for opposition as opposed to essential struggles. Like we think, oh, these struggles are suddenly extant and our, 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 our uh, oppositions are these extant, essentialized oppositions. No, they're oppositions that are incidental to our requirement for opposition. And, and, and these things all beget the, the, the process of identity and meaning. And so when we look at Christ and what influence that has actually had, I actually have a 180 degree view of, of Gerard, very similar to Gerard, but the inverse, where I, what I see is instead the self-victimization, where we want to become our the, the, the scapegoats, because the scapegoat being the object of the scapegoat is the highest position that you yeah, can possibly that's, that's completely right. 
And that point has actually been made by Girard himself. That that basically this because because we live in a in a in a society that that absolutely rejects scapegoating. The only way that you can scapegoat is to say that you are being scapegoated. So you're totally right. And Girard actually pointed out uh, pointed that out. And that's so so that goes to say that goes to show that that this so there's this there's this drive in humans to go back to these very archaic patterns. And it's very, very difficult to get that out of people. And a lot of religions have tried and a lot of religions have failed, including Christianity. And it's extremely difficult to, to kind of stop people from, from forming mobs that, that go after scapegoats, no matter, no matter, even if you have a religion that actually at the heart of it says like, you know, do not scapegoat, literally, the, per, the central person in our religion has, is somebody that's being scapegoated. Even that religion is being used for scapegoating. So you're totally right. And it's one of the big problems with Christianity is that it has put scapegoating so central that it can be weaponized to make more scapegoats. And Girard has written about that very clearly. So that's well, not- who really wrote about it was Nietzsche, because this is the fundamental Nietzschean critique of Christianity. And here I agree with Thomas, yeah. it's way more than Christianity. But it was Nietzsche's critique of Christianity and his rebellion against this Protestant pastor or father in Germany or something. But but this is the problem. And and it returns today as woke culture. And and, and I'd like to throw it to Alex here, because Thomas and I agree completely on this one. I throw it to Alex here is that in a way that I never experienced that really talented people were involved with woke culture. It was always the talentless. It's just like the reason why woke happened was that we opened the door to the internet and said, everybody will be discovered. You're all stars. You know, everybody can put their music or the whatever crap they're producing out there. And they will have an audience. Like if they, for every human being who wanted to be a star, there'd be automatically 100,000 people applauding them. And there was no math to it. Just like, no. All you do is to scratch each other's backs, pretending to like what you're doing, and really nobody cares about it because you're producing a spam. And this, I think, is something interesting artistically. The lynch mob starts with the talentless hating the talented. And as soon as the talent get exposure to what they're talented with, they often go after the talented guys so the talentless can be there. Why do you think these, these huge stars like Johnny Depp and Kevin Spacey have all these people going after them? Of all the thousand people they probably fucked in their life, three of them call a newspaper somewhere and suddenly it's a scandal. That's exactly what's happening. So woke culture today is again, I agree with Thomas, it's again this phenomenon of the talentless mass going after the few of talent because talent is rare. Well, Gerard, Gerard's main point was about also about envy is the hidden emotion. You can't admit that you're envious of somebody else, so you straight away start to attack them. The, my my only comment with regard to the artist thing, and you're right, I, I I know very very few artists whom I truly respect who I would describe as fervently woke, uh, wokeish maybe, but not like you know on a scapegoat mission. And the only thing I could say to that is bringing it back to energetics and to the release is that the release of art, again, in order to really create art, you have to be willing to allow the schematizations of the mind and predictive mind theory and all the things that create the equilibrium of the mind and the stasis and everything's safe and everything's predicted and no weird errors are occurring. And you're, as in rare a case in the state of awe, which is exactly the state of your schematization being overwhelmed, that's the state of awe, where suddenly you're like, whoa, what is this? You're as you're, you're, you, you minimize the experience of awe when you're not an artist. When you're an artist, you, if you're an artist, 
It's not like, oh, I'm going to be an artist today. If you're an artist, allowing the schematization to dissolve or to be overwhelmed or to be in a state that exceeds or transcends your own schematization and breaks and so that you're always forming anew, that is the process of artistry. So we're constantly experiencing a release from the, the tight schematization. Whereas, and so because of that constant experience of release, we don't need to find some other release. And we're not so pent up that we need to transpose our necessity for release onto another. And suddenly then, because again, what they get from identifying another is the release from status anxiety, which is precisely the release from the schematization of the mind, which says, this is right, this is the correct behavior, this is the right thing, dress this way, act this way, and release that onto someone ex uh, uh, to the extent that they uh, create an excess of sort of pathical overload that allows them to be released into that flood of indeterminacy for a moment. And they need that. And artists tend to not because we sort of, sort of live our days out within intermittently going into that release. So that's the only thing I can come up with that would dis that, that, that would uh, dif that would uh, explain why most of the artists I know that I respect don't tend to be super fervent about uh, releasing themselves into the scapegoat mechanism. Now, I even say this, that's say, say you say you got a concert or an exhibition, right? And 300 people attended. And maybe it's really good. You've done a really good job. And 270 of them have a transformative experience. I love it. You still got the 30 guys who envy you for being successful. And the first thing they react to when they see that your music or your art or whatever is fantastic is that how the fuck did he do it? Why wasn't that? Why haven't I done it? Why is he getting the attention that I should have? Envy. You find envy as soon as you open a gallery with a gallery opening and you're going to be some people coming in. They're being really envious. That's the bad review. We should have a good one. The bad view when you should really have a good one it always comes from that guy who was the failed artist and became a journalist. There is so many of them. And I think what happens is that when we start thinking about that potential, we should be glad that people have no patience, actually, because I think the really envious people, they jump from one art exhibition, one transformative experience to the next and envy and envy and envy anybody as a talent. But the real, really dangerous ones, they're the ones that get stuck with the envy towards you and stay with it and start building behind your back the revenge against you. And that I think is fundamental lynch mobbing. There's something lacking in lynch mobbing. And the and the and just has to do with that, right? The, it's always it's always the guy who will not forget that he I hates He's monomania. It's monomaniacal in, in yeah. some yes. kind of a way. Yeah. Yes. And I'm not, and I'm not sure that this is the case, but this would be the case with anyone who's genuinely identified an artist and is envious of the artist, not of their position in society. But if you're envious of an artist, for me, whenever I've been envious of an artist, and maybe we all have at some point, it's an envy of their ability to dissolve their own schematization. It's an envy of their freedom. It's an envy of their in, their ability to enter the state of indeterminacy, which is beyond the schematization of the mind, the, their ability to be in the moment, to their ability to express themselves freely. And all, and, and that's really the envy. And I think that for people who can't get there and uh, uh, ex, um, emancipate themselves, at least on a temporary basis, into that sort of state, uh, they could enter an existential crisis where they need to kill you. Or something, yeah. because what you end up representing is essentially a god that you cannot transcend into, and yeah. uh, and they need to eradicate. Yeah, them. it's turning turning humans into gods, right? And that's that's what happens when you have the collapse of religion. <laughs>
Well, yeah, sure. I mean, but but it if also you don't, if you don't have any real gods anymore or a mechanism that kind of replaces that in a more constructive way, then you turn humans into gods. And, and just to clarify obstacles. what you're saying, are you basically saying that when you have the structure of religion, you have a god which is transcendent, but which is understood global or globally within the membrane of the religion well, well, that this... nobody can un that nobody can transcend to, and so therefore there's not this sense that like. There's no sense of envy. The envy becomes sort of impotent because nobody can become God. And whereas in the well, case of the well, rock star, I, you feel like you might be able to. Yeah, well, well, I, I think that that's actually, you know, you can do this in many different ways. Like, for example, we talked about the caste system and stuff like that. All of these stories, all of that ontotheology, as uh, Heidegger called it, is not so important. As long as your religion kind of avoids these things that can spiral out of control. How it does that is not so important. It's important that you kind of avoid people from going into turning each other's into rivals, turning each other's into obstacles. How that is done, not so important as long as it works in the current paradigm, as uh, Alexander would say. So Buddhism does it in a certain way. Hinduism does it in a certain way. Judaism does it in a way. Christianity does it in a way. I'm not saying any of these are perfect or 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 not perfect, but that's basically what religion tries to do. And all of these religions are successful to some extent. If they weren't, they wouldn't be around. Well, I, I agree with Thomas here, not, actually. I'm not like, a cynical person in the like, sense of, oh, it's all the same and stuff like that. Of course, it's not the same. Everybody, anybody who looks around can see that some religions are a lot more successful than others, right? But all of these religions try to get to the same thing. Well, to the, the problem is like... Survive. The problem is that we're all envious, like you can't avoid that, you know, yeah. there's no way to avoid that. That's why you need these lesser gods in the religions, you know, uh, you can't, you, it's a pretense, like that's the problem with Protestantism, I think, in a way, is that it, it tries to get rid of all the lesser gods, which you need to worship in some kind of way, because we all, we all, we all, even if we don't want to be envious, it's very rare to not have to be without envy or well, pro protestantism is a big uh, big thing right there are actually i mean there are many different uh varieties of that and some of them are actually pretty successful but but to the extent that that religions fail to keep people from from rivalry and turning each other into 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 rivals and into obstacles they fail that's the point but is the presence of God, can it be described as the positive in the sense that by creating such a, uh, a, a, a that it, it essentially creates a relativist yeah. leveling where, yes, one guy may be richer and one guy, but in comparison to God, we're all sort of like relatively, uh, is, is, is there, a, is that the well, level? Well, the, the, th mm -hmm. the thing with yeah, monothe yeah. Monothe monotheism was developed in parallel with polytheism. They're not opposed at all. Monotheism was developed as an elite idea, an elite idea. It's a precursor to philosophy. So it's better to just have God as concept rather than having the gods. Of course, then Christianity tried to introduce that to the masses, but it was really successful only when they started introducing the saints and the martyrs. So there were lots more, there were little Christs everywhere. Suddenly there were all these martyrs. They weren't Christ. They didn't die like him on the cross, but they often died or martyrs and all that. And what saved Catholicism was, of course, that it supplied these lesser gods. Okay, Alexander, yeah. question for you. Mm -hmm. So your book is full of Tantra and Sutra. So a religion is successful to the extent that it has something that corresponds to a sutra and a tantra. Agree? No, or... it's successful because it 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 works with a certain paradigm. I think for feudal society, it's better to get rid of the tantra, call it sin, and then go totally sutric. That's what Christianity and Islam did. Christianity and Islam tried to completely ban tantra, call it sin, 
about using the concept of sin, they'd said, you must not do any of this. It only exists to tempt you, temptation. So don't do it because if you do it, God will hate you for it, right? That's Islamic Christianity fundamentally. What happened in the East, because you had trade routes, power sharing, undogmatic or many dogmas or different interpretations in Buddhism, every different spiritual school, it's its own interpretation of Buddhism. We actually just added the word Buddhism in the 19th century as Europeans onto a lot of different spiritual schools along the trade routes. These are the spiritual schools I think now have a golden opportunity and are probably the only ones that are going to survive. There's a reason why we go to retreat centers and sit and meditate and do the yoga and become embodied because it's a natural reaction to this very virtual cyber world we're living in with laptops and smartphones. Therefore, that will increase. So the good response, dialectical response to living in internet society with laptop and smartphone addictions is to go more into yoga and meditation. Therefore, you must go into the tantric. Oh, wait, the East always allowed that because as soon as you get out of the sort of dogmatic field and you go into the, the Tantra Sutra division, I totally defend that. And this is what you and I agreed previously, at least, Thomas, is that we must have Sutra Tantra division and we cannot declare Tantric to be sin and disqualify because then it only returns to the pressure cooker. I'm completely convinced Catholicism has practiced mass pedophilia for 2,000 years. That's what happens when you say you must not be Tantric. It comes back and explodes as the dirty undercurrent, nasty underneath, and that's exactly what won't work. The Catholic Church is in a massive crisis because the biggest scandal we probably will ever see in history is this one. And it can't deal with it because it is a result of celibacy. So that's a reform that must happen in Catholicism, and God knows what kind of priest you get then. These are just massive moves that need to be done today for these things to work. But the Tantra Sutta divide is a must. Nothing else can be credible. Just like dying when you die is a must. Accepting that's what people do today. That's why they call themselves secularized. They don't believe in the afterlife any longer, and they won't. I think that concludes our evening um, today. That was pretty intense, guys. There's so much love in the room. I can just feel it. It's <laughs> making me one. crazy, Hon man. Honestly, There's so that was much love one. here. <laughs> There is. Well, I mean, that's why you invite us, right? To get a good fight. Oh, God, I love Thomas. And I love having cigars and contact. I love this man so much. Believe me. I love the fight. I love the fight. Yeah, we bring out the best of each other. That's the way to do it. Come on. It's that's wonderful. This is Parallax. Yes, I love it. Honestly, I thought that that was a really good one. I really did. I think we'll, I think we'll be able to look back on that one. Great. I'd, I'd, love to dig, yes. I'd love to dig into the topic of potentialism, what, what can possibly not overcome but complete capitalism so we can move forward. I'd love to dig into that further. It's definitely coming. It's part of this book, but it's just the opening. This is just the opening. I think the topic is immensely valuable. The, sake, the return of the sacred and the private in the world with the profane and the public has become absolutely vulgar. Yeah. I agree on that. I think we all agree on that. That's, that's parallax. That's core parallax to me. Yeah, and I... I, and I yeah, the, the the sacred time, profane time thing is is core to my shit too. I think there's a way to 